Welcome to the Colonial Department, the podcast where we take long-lost stories from Philippine colonial history and bring them to life. In this episode, we sniff out the money, the riches, and the goods plundered by the East India Company during the successful British invasion of Manila. This is episode 12, The Pearl and the Plunder of the Orient Seas. On August 6, 1888, the 15th man to register in the British Museum's reading room was a man who was slightly shorter and darker than many of the others inside the building with him. This man was a well-traveled Asian who, only a year before, had published an incendiary book that had gotten him the ire of the friars lording it up over his homeland. This man's name was Jose Rizal, and he was here to do some <clears throat> light reading. With no photocopying machines or cell phone cameras on hand, Rizal had to copy by hand Antonio de Morga's 1609 history book, Sucesos de las Islas Filipinas. It was painstaking work. The library was open Monday to Saturday from 9 a.m. to 8 p.m., and Rizal spent a month on this laborious task. He was only able to get started on his famous annotations in the middle of September, but by then, he had vowed to read everything in the museum that had to do with the Philippines. There was a lot. In a letter to Mariano Ponce, Rizal would comment on the breadth of Philippine documents inside the British Museum. Perhaps these maps and books and letters had arrived in Britain inside the hold of a merchant ship rounding out the Cape of Good Hope or steaming through the Suez Canal. Perhaps they had exchanged hands all the way from Manila to Chennai to Constantinople to London, passing from trader to collector to curator. Or, and this is the most likely explanation, they were all part of the extensive war booty taken by the British when they invaded Manila in 1762. The British troops were a multi-ethnic force consisting of around 6,800 men who had sailed to the Spanish colony aboard 13 fighting ships. And when they overwhelmed the forces of both the Spanish and Filipino defenses in the final siege of October 6, 1762, pillage was their first order of business. How long the sack of Manila went on depends on who you ask. Archbishop Manuel Rojo, the acting governor-general at the time, accused the invaders of a savage, severe looting that lasted 40 hours. Soldiers broke down doors of houses and churches, seizing whatever they could get their hands on. Gold, silver, jewels, art, family heirlooms, religious objects. They raped women and desecrated the churches and threw on the robes of priests and friars and paraded madly around the town. One widow, Feliciano de Ariola, was stripped of all her clothes and most likely raped before the marauders made off with everything she owned, including the clothes of her children. It is also interesting to note that, in an 1803 history book, a Spanish historian also accuses the local Filipinos of joining in the pillage of Manila. Faced with Spanish accusations after the invasion, 
the commanding officer of the English Land Forces, Colonel William Draper, denied that the looting had gone on for 40 hours. It went on, he said, for only three hours. Almost three centuries on, reading Draper's own defense against the Spanish accusations reminds one of a smarmy, greasy corporate executive reading out a prepared statement. They had every intention, Draper declared, of conquering Manila like gentlemen. We were desirous to save so fine a city from destruction, order them to withdraw, consult, and propose such terms of capitulation as might satisfy the fleet and army and exempt them from pillage and its fatal consequences, he wrote. It was unfortunate, Draper admitted, that looting had occurred, but it had been carried out by renegade troops and certainly not sanctioned by British command. He reminded his readers, All military men know how difficult it is to restrain the impetuosity of troops in the first fury of an assault, especially when composed of such a variety and confusion of people who differed as much in sentiments and language as in dress and complexion. He ended by writing that the place was pillaged for 40 hours and that pillage authorized and permitted by me is a most false and infamous assertion. But while it is true that British command eventually restored order and that Draper himself would personally shoot a would-be looter, the plunder of Manila did not stop there. Those soldiers ransacking houses for coins and jewels, that was small-time stuff. Now it was time for the real looting to begin. One million Spanish dollars. That was the ransom being offered by the Spanish to their new invaders. Protection racket money, in effect, to save the city from being razed to the ground. The British weren't having it. While their troops rampaged outside, the top British brass was meeting with Archbishop Manuel Rojo inside Fort Santiago. Four million dollars, the commander said, or nothing. Manila was the Pearl of the Orient, and they'd shake down that oyster for everything it could give. The Spanish didn't have much choice. They agreed to the amount and scrounged up two million dollars, just half the agreed amount, by turning their treasury pockets inside out and soliciting cash and valuables from the Spanish residents. As for the balance of two million, the British weren't too worried. They would get that dough sooner or later because they were now the rulers of Manila. And as we know, when you're on top, there are many, many ways to enrich yourself. After all, the invasion of Manila was, in many ways, a business proposition. It began as a plan in the British Admiralty, one of the many war operations authorized by the military to win the Seven Years' War. But it was passed on to the offices of the East India Company, and from then on, it became a company venture, a little corporate outing with lives and fortunes hanging in the balance sheet. Founded in 1600, the East India Company had evolved into more than just a trading company. Over 150 or so years, it had turned into an occupying force, a gauntleted fist of the British Empire. It commanded troops and conquered territories. 
it deployed entire navies and toppled Nawabs across the great subcontinent of India. In 1757, East India Company employee Robert Clive routed the forces of the ruler of Bengal, had himself installed as governor, and overnight became one of the richest men in the world. Clive's victory also paved the way for the British takeover of the entire Indian subcontinent. Five years later, it was not unimaginable to think that the British East India Company could do the same in Manila. But Dawson Drake was no Robert Clive, and the British administration in the Philippines proved brief, corrupt, and constantly hammered by threats, both from outside and inside the Intramuros walls. Dawson Drake, a company man who spent most of his life in India, was installed as Provisional and Deputy Governor of Manila in a lavish ceremony, complete with a 15-gun salute and with prominent Spanish officials standing sullenly to the side. Appointed along with Drake was a Manila Council composed entirely of company men. The EIC was even able to sniff out an Englishman named Kennedy, who had been living in the Parian Ghetto for 20 years and assigned him as the colony's official liaison to the Chinese. But even if Dawson Drake was by name and position the governor of the Philippines, thorny politics tripped him up wherever he turned. Throughout his tenure, Drake feuded constantly with the military. They clearly did not like this puffed-up chief executive, judging by the charges piled up on Drake the minute this whole invasion was over. But more on that later. Suffice to say that the report submitted by a British captain to the Secretary of War after the occupation called the Drake administration a hell too severe to be endured by human nature. He rubbed everyone the wrong way, from Rear Admiral Samuel Cornish to Cornish's successor, Captain Brereton. There was even one incident when Dawson Drake and one of his majors were an inch away from killing each other, Drake with his sword, the major with a musket he grabbed from one of his men. Fortunately or unfortunately, the soldiers around him were able to wrest the two men apart and stop any bloodshed. The threat of the Spanish resistance seemed to be insufficient to douse the petty British infighting. Truth be told, the soldiers the British had brought to the Philippines were not enough to take control of the entire archipelago. The British held Manila and Cavite, but not much else. After the surrender, a Spanish judge named Simon de Anda proclaimed himself as the one true governor-general of the Philippines and assembled an army of Spanish and native troops that prowled the provinces surrounding the city. And so English sentries manned the walls, looking nervously out of the parapets for any signs of attack. There was another thing the British were worried about. Money. Repairs, salaries, the financing of attacks against Anda, the daily running of Manila and Cavite, it was like a black hole inside the British treasury. Worse still, they had lost two important sources of revenue. First, as a way of gaining local support against the Spanish, Dawson Drake had promised all Filipinos that he would not tax them. Second, as records show, trade sunk to an all-time low during the British occupation. With Manila in enemy hands, the galleon trade understandably ground to a halt, 
and import logs in Acapulco, Mexico, registered what one historian called a precipitous drop during the years of the British occupation. To keep their venture in the black, the British had to exert some creatively gentle pressure. In Manila Bay, they captured a galley with 30,000 Spanish silver dollars inside its home. In Cavite, they surrounded and bombarded a 1,500-ton galleon for five hours until the crew surrendered and the British seized two to three million dollars worth of goods from inside its fully stocked holds. On land, the occupiers forcibly seized the property of Augustinian friars and the documents found inside the church libraries and monasteries were auctioned off. By 1763, the financial situation had become so desperate that the British were borrowing money from ships docking in Manila. A ship of Armenian merchants actually lent them 40,000 Spanish dollars to be paid back in full in Madras within 30 days. After two years of occupation, the Seven Years' War came to an end. Spain got back control of Manila as part of the terms of the 1763 Treaty of Paris. Ironically enough, they would lose it again in another Treaty of Paris, 135 years later. Anyway, it took a year for official orders to come from King George III to evacuate Manila, which the British finally did on May 31, 1764. They returned the colony back to Simon de Anda with much pomp and ceremony, with Anda riding into the city on a white horse, and the British and Spanish troops hosting dinners for each other. Still, despite the seeming goodwill of the surrender, the British government would keep on pestering the Spanish crown for the rest of the $4 million ransom it had demanded from Manila. Back in Madras, the bean counters of the East India Company submitted a reimbursement form to the imperial government. The conquest of Manila, it said, cost 163,243 pounds. This amount included all military expenses, the maintenance of garrisons, naval repairs, debt interest, expeditions against the Spanish resistance, and curiously, even a receipt for rupees stolen from a member of the Manila Council. Meanwhile, in their record books, you can see why the management of the colony was lacking so many funds. They were keeping all that money for themselves. The East India Company logged a total of 636,514 Spanish dollars in profit from the venture. One-third of this amount went straight to the company. The remaining two-thirds was split into eight portions which was then divided among all the officers and soldiers who participated in the invasion. We can't discount the fact that these official records might be all underreported. What we do know for sure is that Admiral Samuel Cornish, Colonel William Draper, and even Governor Dawson Drake returned to their hometowns very rich men. William Draper returned to England and faced an inquiry regarding the conduct of his troops during the invasion. But his reputation seemingly survived intact, and he was knighted four years after the Manila campaign. He toured North America and married a member of one of the richest New York families in their soon-to-be independent colony. 
when he retired with the rank of Lieutenant General, he spent his final days in a mansion in Bristol, which he called Manila Hall. Rear Admiral Samuel Cornish saw no more service after the conquest of Manila. He became a member of parliament and a baronet and purchased a large country estate. He died a bachelor and left all his money to his nephew, Samuel Pitchford, who had also served in the invasion. Governor Dawson Drake went back to India, where he was charged with misconduct and mismanagement. Among the accusations, that he had received bribes from Chinese businessmen and Spanish citizens who were trying to curry his favor. He was found guilty of several charges and was demoted. Additionally, he was forbidden from ever leaving India, a punishment that may not actually have bothered Drake so much as that was where he was born and raised. When he died, many rare documents, charts, maps, and paintings from Manila were found inside Drake's house. A great number of these eventually found their way to the British Museum, there to be found perhaps by one Dr. Jose Rizal, who marveled at the rich treasure trove of Filipiniana inside the building, and perhaps wondered how in the world they got there. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Colonial Department. These are the references I used in this episode. Number 1. Shirley Fish's 2003 book, When Britain Ruled the Philippines, 1762-1764, is an excellent starting point and provides a comprehensive overview of the entire invasion. Number 2. Horacio de la Costa compiled documents on the invasion in the article The Siege and Capture of Manila by the British, September to October 1762, published in the journal Philippine Studies in 1962. Number 3. Gregorio Zaides, Documentary Sources of Philippine History, published in 1990, and Volume 49 of the multi-volume Blair and Robertson work The Philippine Islands, 1493 to 1803, published in 1907, both likewise contain important documents from this period. Number 4. Info on Rizal's visit to the British Museum was gleaned from the Manila Bulletin article, Scholar's Essay Narrates Jose Rizal's Work in London, published in 2019. The Colonial Department was created and produced by Leo Mangubat. Follow us on Instagram at the Colonial Department.